So welcome to the AEC Hive podcast, where we're going to talk about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, a director at ArcDocs, and I'm joined by my co-founder for AEC Hive, John Egan from BIM Launcher. John, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, delighted to be here. Looking forward to another podcast. We're very excited today to be joined by Ellen Waha from who's the global lead for digital transformation of Bureau Hapalt and the co-founder of Cogital. Alain, you're very welcome and we, we appreciate you, your time. Do you want to give us a brief introduction to yourself and what you're doing and we can start talking about innovation? Yes, uh, thank you for having me. I think people that know me uh, call me a digital agitator and I suppose I was born a bit as a geek and uh, in the very, very early days of hobbyists having um, PCs at home and uh, if you can remember that far back, 8-bit computers and 60 kilograms of RAM and uh, and so I've always uh, accompanied that digitization of businesses and then their transformation, which then can be thought of as a digitalization, which is only a few letters apart. So that's why I like to talk about the digital transformation of activities, businesses, and in this case, architecture, engineering, and construction. I mean, you're working with a a global sort of leading company in innovation. So obviously, you're seeing that on a day-to-day basis. But, I mean, is it fair to say that that's probably an unusual place for for the, the majority of the, the AEC sector, that a vast majority are not engaged in sort of leading-edge innovation? Well, what's your view on that? Uh, that's, a, that's a tough question to, uh, to say that, you know, as an industry, we're not innovating. I think we are a slow clock speed industry. That is clear. You know, innovation gets rewarded on very large timescales. You know, you start thinking about a new hotel, you find a site, you start uh, looking for planning. By the time the thing is built and you know whether your innovation in that product has worked, we are talking, you know, a five-year clock cycle. So our clock cycles are longer than most. So that's something to think about. Um, So innovation velocity can be slower. I think we are a much more complicated industry than most, if not any. So that's also worth keeping in mind. And so we are seeing that the digital innovations, if we're being very specific now, would find it more difficult to enter the market and to have an impact because we're just so much more complicated than any other industry. So, so I think those are not excuses, but points to keep in mind on why digital innovation might be perceived as lacking or less in our industry than others. But is there a two-tier industry where you know there's there's a group of companies and that are very high performing and then there's there's another tier that are just doing the same thing over and over again and not not really pushing the boundaries in in, in any sort of way. Do you feel that that's the case or I think, yes, it might be a consequence of the fact that, you know, digital technology is exponential. So we are now all in a live experiment in exponential propagation, not of ideas or technology, but but of a virus. We know that a few days, you know, if things double every three days, you wait three days and you have twice as big a problem. And I think 
in in the case of digital technology, um, the time constant is 18 months. So if you delay adoption by 18 months, you you will find that your competitor are t- using technology that's twice as powerful and so uh, are quite significantly ahead. You have to be very, very careful about that. Nokia, for example, owned the market of mobile phone and missed the turn to um, smartphone. It's, it's not that they didn't see it coming. They had the 95 communicator, if everybody can remember that far back. By their estimate, they missed committing to smartphone by one quarter. One quarter of delay is what, when really digital technology took hold in the phone market, is what killed Nokia. It's really you know, worth keeping in mind that you can't ignore it. It has to support what your business is about. It's not technology for technology's sake. It's really thinking, when does this thing really augment and help what it is that I want to do and what my, my, my business does? Uh, is it getting closer to my customer? Is it helping them understand my design better? Is it building better? But once it starts taking hold, it's, it's, it really goes quick. What frustrates you about the sector and what excites you? you know, what, in other words, what's, do, what's working well and what do you feel needs to change? Yeah, I, th- I think what's, what's exciting is what the sector is about. The, the sector is, is about you know, creating the infrastructure, the, the, the space we live in. I mean, everybody lives in the sector. It's, it, there's, there's nothing more exciting about that to be relevant to everyone. You know, um, if you're making a better car, that's nice. Who needs another better car? You know, a few people are excited about it, but a better space to live in, a better space to work in, uh, uh, a better cultural experience, a better stadium to, to go to uh, a, a, a football match, I think that's really, really exciting. And the idea that um, technology and innovation has not really been taken up by our sector in the last, you know, 500 years means that it's very exciting for the generation of today that they're going to be given that technology to to change the built environment. It's it's really like knowing in the mid 80s, you know, people said, oh, the, um, the computers are going to change the world and to be really excited and and then. And then, you know, starting to put a computer on every desktop and then putting a computer in every hand, we call it a phone, but, but it's really the vision of a computer and a device in every hand. That happened in my lifetime and I saw it, I saw it happen, but we've not seen that same journey happen in the built environment yet. And I think that's what is so exciting uh, for anybody coming to this industry. That's what they're going to see. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Cogital and Bureau Apple in those two roles that you have? It is about um, agitation and digital agitation. So Bureau Apple asked me five, six years ago to have an opinion and to to help think through how we were going to use BIM at the time. And I think they they found my answer refreshing in terms of saying it's not about BIM, it's about design. You know, Bureau Happel is a firm of engineers that like to work with architects and with clients at finding better solutions. And they are very thankful that they are addressed those difficult questions by, um, you know, visionary clients and ambitious clients. 
And, uh, and so in that context, deploying technology to answer those questions better, faster, in a more agile way, you may call that BIM, but it's, it's all about computational engineering, really. That, that was really interesting to calibrate how effectively we could get that pervasively into the, into the firm. And I think it's, it's, it's mostly about, you know, the culture of the firm becoming the, the right culture is mostly about um, helping everybody in the firm make the, the right journey. So, so for me, it was a, a small, a small role to play as, as part of a much wider team of, of advocates that created followers for the idea of uh, adopting technology. And of course, different boards and different uh, friends really that I work with as Cogital are asking the same question, but I tend to frame it more in a, in a, more strategic and uh, theoretical answer saying, you know, these are, these are your opportunities. This is, this is the way to go about it because obviously there is only uh, one of me and, um, and I can't do as much for, for everybody. So I do most of my time with Borough Happold and then some time with Cogital asking more and answering more strategic questions, both also on the technology supply, you know, the technology innovators that you know, they call them startups or, or the, the investors that are putting money into those startups. They really like the innovators and the, the insurgent thinking from the technologists, but they lack maybe a bit of the understanding of the structure of the industry, the real problem of the industry and how to go in and, and um, set up the, the right conversation to find product market fit. So we, we help there as well, which is quite exciting role for, for Cogital to meet so many startups and innovators um, wanting to come to our industry and, um, and guiding them in, towards the right problems. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, that's one of the things we, I suppose we were trying to do with AEC Hive is we see we've just seen sort of pockets of innovation around the world in sort of hackathons and little groups and experts that seem to be operating by themselves and we were just trying to bring people together in a community that is dealing with innovation john you're you're a a startup in this space and um i mean do you have any questions for alan I have loads of questions for Alan. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> I mean where where do I start? Maybe if I if I start with giving an overview of, of the challenges that that we're trying to overcome and then if Alan has any advice or um uh lend lend any guidance, whether that be strategic or otherwise for startups that are in my shoes or that'd be great. Um so BIM Launcher, we are based in West Farland. We're three people. We're building tools that help the industry adopt industry standards easier um, and adapt to industry standards easier. So we have two products. We have an integration platform that connects to different project management systems and helps information files travel between um, common data environments or project management systems. So everything is in sync for, for the project and the, the stakeholders have access to the information that they need when they need it. And then we have another product which is in development that helps clients and, and supply chain establish information standards ahead of the project and then throughout the project life cycle helps them deliver a structured set of information that can be you know pulled through to the operations phase of the building so the building will have a foundation 
to build digital twin based on or the information that's developed through the procurement process from concept through to commissioning and, and handover. I suppose what's interesting for us is that we're struggling to get traction. Personally, I find that I've that I'm like my own little silo um, where I have my network. I talk about various different problems and come up with solutions. And it's very much so try to keep out the, the status quo. And if you were a startup and you were in my position, what would be your approach with going to the market with your product or solution? And how could you advise that I change the way or I suppose from what you know of or told you so far about BIM Launcher, what would be your, the criteria or advice that you would give to to us? And what advice do you give to your other startups that you work with? Yes, that's that's a long, long question. Um, if, I, <laughs> if I understood, you know, the, how, how do you gain traction yeah. and and how how do you change the world? You know, I, I think for startups are fantastic ecosystem to change the world, right? I think innovation happens because people are ambitious for a different world, a different outcome. And, and innovation happens inside companies that, that help these innovators and, and they already have room to market and they already have scale and, and, and they could kind of kind of align that innovation to the route to markets they have to, to, to make a difference and change the world. Cause that's what an innovator wants to do, right? He, he just dreams of a better, a better world making a difference. Or you, you are more insurgent. There is no fertile large company with already an existing market to, to go in and do it in. Or it's just where you are geographically or where you are in your, your, your head of wanting to work with a mate and you, you end up being a, a startup. But I think. What's great about AC Hive, be those that are members from the startup community or, or the innovators community in the normal firms, and it's they all dream of a better world and uh, very exciting. Now, I think the question of traction, that's really a, a question that is measured in terms of financial return for a startup. A startup is an economic instrument to change the world. It works in some cases and it doesn't work in other cases. And I think at the beginning, when you're a founder and you want to change the world and says, oh, I found a problem, first thing to, to do, then I, I can find a solution to that problem. That's That's great. And so you're feeling satisfied. Unfortunately, for a startup to work, you need somehow get a flywheel of adoption where where the value you create through that solution gets quickly to many people. So that's that adoption. The cost of acquiring these customers needs to be sufficiently small so that you create a positive margin of money that allows you to then make the product better and reinvest into this adoption that is actually allowing your solution to have an impact. And I don't think that this flywheel thing it takes enough uh, center piece to the economics of a startup or the thinking of a startup. You know, we talk about iterating on product market fit, et cetera, but it's really understanding this road to purchase. For me, the most vibrant example that we all know is Dropbox. And I think really think about Dropbox. You don't know what the founders really set off to, to make. Um, you know that it started with the cloud. Um, but what's genius about Dropbox is that um, the flywheel uh, effect, the product is built for that flywheel effect, right? If I want to share something with you and I've simplified sharing by sending you a drop, Dropbox link, suddenly it's inviting you 
to join for free. And you're also going to get your, um, your, your bit of data for, for free. So the, the cost of acquiring this new customer is having this, this really honed process of people recommending each other and getting adoption plus the cost of providing the free data. And if you know how many of those people convert from free to paying, you are now reselling, you know, a $10 chunk of storage space for, you know, 100 times how, how much it costs you to buy it in. And so they've invented the commercial flywheel that also happens to be solving a small need. Doesn't change an industry, but it really scales up. And unfortunately, uh, too many founders that are going the startup route don't think about that flywheel and what that looks like and how the product may be less elegant, less fundamental, less exceptional but has an amazing flywheel. And so instead of having a brilliant product used by 10 people, you have a slightly less brilliant problem, a product, but being used by a million. So your impact is greater in the end with a lesser product. Um, so that would be my advice. Consider that flywheel. I think that the flywheel example is, is great. Do you, so for instance, Dropbox, with Dropbox, they've, uh, I suppose, uh, like a much bigger market and they can afford to drop the prices to, you know, $10 a month and, and so forth. Like, do you think that the construction industry and I suppose the sectors that we're building solutions for around, you know, I suppose the people who actually are engaging with these information management standards can actually, do you think that there's enough of a market and what would the flywheel look like for not public uh, services like Dropbox? What would the flywheel look like for construction um, sectors, in in your opinion? Yes, I think that's a really, you know, really good question. I mean, we, we've seen su- successes and failures in, in construction, right? So about five years ago, we started looking at connecting design. And we've had a failure in that space, but we also looked at connecting the, the site and we had great successes. So the, the idea that the collaborative design workflow and engineering workflow should be connected at a data level. This was uh, what Flux uh, Factory and Flux IO brought to the market. Um, and it, what was really interesting is that um, the flywheel, the, the idea is great. Everybody that used the product thought it was great, but the flywheel didn't work. Um, it was maybe too early. Um, it, it may be that the flywheel can never work. Um, you know, a few more people will, will, will attempt it. Um, but we know that the total addressable market for people that would use a flux connector to connect to the fabric that allowed the information exchange was essentially limited to any person using BIM as a generative design tool. So, you know, there was not all the engineering and design firms, only those that were in BIM and only those that were in generative and only those that then decided to do it based on a product that they wouldn't build themselves because a lot of people found the problem and built their own solution. And then finally, they needed to be able to convince their their uh, businesses to subscribe. So that reduced your, your total addressable market to near zero. And it was the right tool for the early adopter that wouldn't pay for it. And there were too f- few of them. 
Uh, so we had we had a failure, regrettably. But but we know that as an open source ID, it works. And Speckle um, is is essentially Flux in an open source. You don't pay for it. And the community of early adopter helped build the tool. The the success now is anybody that said, look, the next big trend is to make the information work with the site. Why is the site still using paper? Why is the site not accessing any digital tools? And people started saying, look, um, it sounds crazy, but, um, you know, and it did, you know, seven, eight years ago, if you said, I can see a, a day where every site worker has an iPad and has a, has a smartphone, people would look at you and say, nah, never, they, they don't survive. Then, then they're not I, IP6, they're, they're not safe. They're all the objections. And now you go onto a work site and there's iPads everywhere, smartphones everywhere, and people are upset if you're not equipped with technology. Now, the companies that invested in that simple idea that every construction worker should be connected to the trailer and the trailer should be connected back to the office and they should be enabling the paperwork workflow, the timesheet, the site diaries, and all those things that you know, if you ask somebody that was at a site, please help me with technology. That's the answer they'd have. Companies executed on that. Procore is going on an IPO at what four billion. Uh, Plan Grid executed very well and got acquired for eight hundred million. Don't tell me it doesn't work. Find the flywheel. So I could make a comment there, John. In terms of the size of the market, you made a point earlier, Len, that you know, like everybody is engaged with the built environment. You know. It's People live in buildings, work in buildings, their kids go to school in buildings. So every single person, just about, <laughs> unless you're living in a forest or somewhere, <laughs> is is engaged with the built environment. And, you know, in a digital future, um, you would imagine that every piece of built infrastructure needs information about it in a digital format. So, you know, we're required by law at the moment to have a building record of, of information. Now, the law doesn't say you it has to be digital, but you do have to have that information as a building record uh, under health and safety regulations. So, you know, you could see that where it's going, that eventually people are going to say, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward to have this building record in a paper format that I can't keep it up to date. I can't find it. If I have to share the information with someone, if, you know, if they're doing some work on the, on the building, uh, you know, that's a, that's a problem because I've got to make manual copies. And so in, in that sort of story where everybody needs to engage with information at some level in a digital future, uh, for digital cities, that's, that's quite a big market. It, yeah. it, it is a huge market at individual levels, and that, that's, you know, where the, the prop tech scene is about. And then there is a huge market on the construction scene, which is the, you know, build tech or contact scenes. I think, I think they are, they are two huge, huge opportunities. Um, but we are at the very beginning of it. I think that's what we should keep in mind. And, and we then need to be really focused on the here and now of making a difference in the markets as it is today. Always remember that as soon as we digitize music, we could represent music digitally. We, 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 we were at the beginning of an exciting journey. And so with BIM, all we're doing is, is representing the built asset um, digitally, not digitizing a drawing because a drawing is dead, right? The drawing does not know what a line is. A square on a drawing could be 
a manhole cover, it could be a structural column, it could be a window. Only the human brain knows what it is. Whereas with BIM, we actually have encoded there is a window in that wall. And what we know about this window is maybe it's part specification or a functional specification or even a part number. We have got semantic information, which is then augmented with what we as a brain need, which is the geometric information. So we can still recognize it as a window rather than a database record. But so we are the beginning. With BIM, we've invented the CD with the IFC standards and the standardization of that semantic information. We are representing the, 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 the semantic information of the built environment in a standardized way, maybe a, in, in a more handleable way. And what we now invented is the MP3. Now, once you've got your MP3 in your hand, you know, you can, you can do all sorts of things. You can say, I'm going to stream the MP3 and you've just invented Napster. You know, people would say, no, I've invented Spotify. Yes, you've invented Spotify, but it's 1988. It's called Napster, and you will have an esteemed view. And people will say, ooh, Napster, he saw it. He, he was right. It was, was how music should be. In the future, all music will be digital, and artists will be able to self-promote themselves over the World Wide Web. You're talking... 1998 talk, people saw the future, they used weird language, they went to weird conferences, they were right, but they didn't build the future. Those that build the future, as I said, hey, now with an MP3, I can put a thousand songs in your pocket. Why would you buy a Walkman and put a cassette that breaks or a Discman that gets jumped when you, when, when you move too much and you can only have 10 songs of that CD? I'm going to put a thousand in your pocket. People understood that. They didn't say, hey, I've got I've I've got an IEEE standard and uh, hard drive which I've put onto a microcontroller that is going onto an LCD screen on which you're going to be able to select MP3 track. I mean, they did go wrong. You know, they started debating what IAC encoding standards they should be using and whether they could charge more for a 128k encoded track versus a, a 64k encoded track. These things happened. But they've sort of disappeared in the long history and, and human memory will, will erase this stupid conversation and remember that actually in the existing context, we, we found better. And that then created a platform for the market and the minds to change and say, hey, why, why am I now buying this song on iTunes and then pushing it into my iPod to walk out? Why isn't my iPod just um, getting the song? Why am I not streaming the song straight? And, you've import, and, and, and then take the next step and say, well, actually, it's about the artist talking to its audience, and you've invented Spotify. This took 30 years in music. Mm. Music is a small industry, and it's a straightforward industry. We are a large industry. And we are a complex industry. It's going to take 30 years minimum. And we've just started. So we do need the innovators because we're at the beginning of this journey. And, and I suppose that's what we're trying to do is create a community of innovators where people can come out of their, their silos and, you know, sort of share ideas and share what they're doing. Do you think innovation is something that just is dreamed up or is it deliberate? Like, do you sit down and say, you know, we've got to think about this. How, you know, how are we going to innovate? How are we going to approach this? 
you know, was it haphazard and I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I, there must be a lot of literature. I, I think it's, it's both serendipity and deliberate. I think, you know, you will never find something if you're not looking for it. Because when you find it, you, if you're not looking for it, you, you might not even recognize what it is. So, so it's both that, that state of mind of saying, I want to do much better. I'm not happy with how things are today. And then there is serendipity about what is the innovation, how you got to the innovation, how you validated it and how it got traction and, and, and got the flywheel going. That is more serendipity, but you can, you can certainly maximize uh, success by having a C hive type network where serendipity happened because of the network and the strength of the network and the iteration and the multiplication of, of conversation and, and ideas that are actually additive. Uh, what we do know about the, um, the, the, the um, digital world is that, addition, uh, that, that innovation are highly additive. And, and so you, you, you need to be aware of what others are doing so that you can put your additive innovation on top of theirs. And that creates a very powerful momentum for for the flywheel to uh, to get going. What did you say? I mean, in terms of community and, and why we need open communities. You know, some people might think that if you, you're going to come up with a great idea, it's best to go into a dark room and don't tell anybody about it, and you know, develop it, and then then, then you're first to market. Versus other people who are just open source sharing you know, in, in a sort of community-style conversation about their ideas? Should people be open or should they be closed about what they're doing? Or both, a little bit of both? I think I think every firm has an open innovation network, and we know that open innovation works. I, I think uh, when, when somebody says, I've had this great idea, you know, I'd like to know that this great idea has been had by two or three other people because – Typically, great ideas come up many times. I mean, they, there are a few and they are rare ideas that emerge in a single, in singularity, you know, and, and it's even then is debatable, you know, does EMC, E equal MC square, you know, did, or, or gravity at Newton, you know, did that happen in isolation? No, they had an academic network. They were debating, they were informing. So even if if there was a moment of contemplation and, and on his walks, you know, Einstein creates this thought experiment and, and from there derives, you know, his, his theory of relativity. It's rare. Mm-hmm. I, I think more often, especially in business, great ideas are validated because somebody else had it. So join the community with an open spirit of uh, avoiding the, the not invented here. It's all about how you execute on the idea, who gets the flywheel going and who got to change the world. I mean, we've seen it with music. I come back to that. Apple did not set off to be a music company. Never. They, they had signed away their rights to the brand Apple in the domain of music because Apple Records, which was owned by the Beatles, had that, those rights and they had uh, sort of uh, got an agreement in the uh, mid-90s, I think it was, um, where Apple Records and Apple Computers agreed that their brand would coexist because Apple would never go in music. Um, and voila, um, you know, 
it's really who executes best, who is the most passionate, who listens to the customers. Um, and that takes a network. What's your perspective on this? The construction industry is like a tried and tested thing. You know, we don't do we have to go and talk to customers and find out X, Y and Z? I mean, like it's it's something that every firm, whether they're involved with designing, construction or operating, or they're pretty much providing a like for like service. What do you think is the, I suppose, would be the key differentiator between the likes of Apple innovating within within music and, and the, how they deliver music, you know, compared to what, I suppose, what we're what we're trying to do in the construction industry around innovation? What like, I suppose we we have completely different parameters and I suppose analysis on on the equivalent of what Apple could be or Apple to the music industry would be to the construction industry? So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a great question to um, think about, you know, who will be the innovators in construction, which seems to be certainly a, an undifferentiated product. And uh, so, so, of course, in the case of, uh, of consumer businesses, because the internet arose, then the relationship between the customer and the, the businesses could be reintermediated and, and that platform became a huge disruptor and also a, a method for insurgent business, startup business that wanted to do it different to, to, to arise. And in B2B, like construction, it's, it's going to be more difficult or certainly we need, we need to look at it differently. But for example, we know that Alibaba is a great B2B platform and it just re-intermediated the role, the, the historic role of the distributor. You know, some importer that sat, sat in Hong Kong and you say, I need these things and they would know where there were factories in China and they would go and buy those things from those factories, ship them to you um, and take a margin and take the, 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 the commercial risk. So these people were re-intermediated in B2B. So I, I think looking at uh, construction, you, you, need, you need to ask, we need to ask, you know, why does a construction firm get to build this building over that construction firm and, and what's been driving that and where might technology uh, change that? And I think that the two, two really interesting observations I would make. One first is that if you are a board of a large construction company and somebody turns up and says, we're going to use technology to make your firm better, They'll look at their father, grandfather, grand grandfather and going back in the time of construction. And they say, when is the last time that technology made one firm better than the other? And they would say never. So so you have to be very aware that you are walking into a, a board where investing in technology has not been a winning strategy ever. So you have to convince them that you something has changed. Right. Don't, Investing in technology, they, 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 they invest in all sorts of things, people, safety, uh, supply chain, uh, machine equipment. They, they've, they've got a clear view of how these investments put their firm in a better position to win the next job. And technology is never figured. So, you, you know, don't come and be a geek and, and talk to them in a language they don't understand and ignore the fact that in, you know, it's never worked before. It, you, you have to find those that are going to listen 
and you have to explain in their mindset why it's going to work. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think you are, you're, you're right to put your finger on the structure of the, of our industry or our industry is highly distributed. You may call it collaborative, but certainly there are many, many firms that are working and assembling a team to put the building together. And today, the way they do that with technology is Excel, right? Today, construction runs in Excel. And you go and you see banks and do they work on Excel? No. I mean, would you give your money to a bank that ran everything on Excel? I wouldn't. You go to a retailer and they've got a website, they've got point of sales, they've got staff with iPods, etc. They iPads and they're helping you. You do they run on Excel? No, they don't run in Excel. Would you do you think you could do an online order of, of your next jumper by going onto onto a website and then downloading an Excel sheet and then filling I want this jumper, this part code, yes, and then emailing it to the retailer and hoping that you know another Excel spreadsheet comes back for you to sign with with DHL on the front? No. <laughs> The the rest of the world does not run on Excel, but construction I mean, does. And, and that's because, to, to the point of John, the the information exchange, the, the language of information exchange for our industry at the moment, we do not have the technologies available to replace Excel. It needs to be as simple, as ubiquitous, as frictionless, as easy to configure, Everybody's using it. We need to replace Excel. And they don't exist yet. And do you think that's because, you know, one of our previous speakers said that uh, BIM had been hijacked. <laughs> and, you know, I was just thinking of your music analogy there. Like we've, we've been using all these technologies for 20 years, but it's, it's almost as if we, we've spent a lot of time in taking technologies and work, using them to work backwards. So, like, you've got the MP3 and we've we've building these tools which take the mp3 and push it onto a cd and then print it out as sheet music you know <laughs> yep, and, so, yep. and then, we, then we hand out the sheet music to everybody and then they go and and, and build up a, a, seed, uh, a cd again and then they take out the mp3 on their side <laughs> you know so we're going back and forth between the sort of paper format and the digital format and you know a lot of effort has gone into the tools to be able to produce the paper. Yeah, that was the comment was that BIM had been hijacked because the, the intention of BIM was not to produce drawings and paper. It was the intention of BIM was to you know, build a digital model of the of yeah, the building. I think one could say BIM has been hijacked or or one could take the view that that was the first thing we needed to be able to do, to be backward compatible, to be compatible to the way people work today. You know, ultimately, if I take the music analogy, what you're saying is I bought the song on iTunes, I downloaded it in my computer, and now because I still only have a CD player, I want to be able to burn the disc and put it into my CD player and go and run. You know, the, the disc is the equivalent of all Well, even, even worse than that, we, we have to get to a piece of paper, so... You, but you, but <laughs> you, you also downloaded the artwork, printed the artwork, and put it on the front cover of your of, of your... Um, CD, box, yeah. you know, and and I think you have to you have to say, well, you know, you can see the guy, the Napster guy, say you're crazy. Why don't you just stream, okay? And then the 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 majority of the market that's saying, look, this sounds good because I don't have to go to the store. 
I can get any song. In fact, I can recompose two half CDs. I see the benefit. This is good enough. Um, make it really easy. You know, I don't want to have to download an application, search, get, you know, it's too complicated. Make it really easy. Okay. And making it really easy is what Apple did, right? Because you could buy a song online before Apple. You could put into an MP3 player. It was called Rio. You could handle everything, but it wasn't easy. And so I think, you know, BIM has been hijacked. Maybe. I think we've not made it easy. I think a lot of people have vested interest at every level to call it something. And so that, you know, they are the MP3 gurus of this world. Ah, what? You're still using? Ah, you want to be MP3. You know, it's like, no, great music is great music. Whether it's in an MP3 format or in a vinyl format or, I mean, there are a small percentage of people that will argue. Let's ignore them for a minute. Not disrespectfully, but the majority just wanted music. So don't talk to them about MP3 encoding format. Now, that, of course, does not serve the heroes, the heroes of BIM, doesn't serve um, the tech vendor that have got a flywheel on upgrading everybody from CAD to BIM. These happen to be the two most potent voices, the, the, those that are making money by selling BIM software. Of course, they're going to call it BIM. Of course, they're going to try to upgrade you from CAD to BIM. They've got, they've got no other reason to be but to make money for their shareholders. So they'll, they'll play along with, with that narrative and hijack BIM to, to, to be about printing the, the drawing. And the BIM church will go along. The BIM church will say, ah, well, you know, use, using Revit's much more complicated than, than using AutoCAD. You need a, a BIM template as if we didn't have CAD template before. You need information standard as if we didn't have this information standard before. And, and, um, they go even further. They go, you know, with a, with a model, we can find where there are spatial interferences, which means the design is not in is not coordinated. But they don't say it like that, do they? They say, I'll do clash detection and I will be in charge of doing design coordination. No, you won't. No, you're going to go and explain to the design managers how with the new technology that's now available, they can do better design coordination because a spatial clash is not a lack of design coordination. It's just a spatial clash. A human decides whether it's a spatial clash is a design error. And sometimes there are non-spatial things that don't clash spatially that are still design coordination errors. So, you know, clash avoidance should be the aim of the technology that the BIM manager puts in place. Design coordination was always there and should be enabled by technology in the hands of those that were in charge of that process from the beginning. Now, BIM church doesn't talk like that because they want to be self-important. They want to be heroic. No, no, no. The fact that you know how to run Navisworks doesn't make you a hero. Teach somebody else and make your whole design practice adopt the tools. Make them understand how what they do can be done better through technology. Then I start to listen and say, you are doing a great job. And then we're coming up to the hour. Um, John, do you have any final questions? Or? Um, um, thanks very much for your time. I think you've spoken a lot of sense and it's really... It's a breath of fresh air to hear someone talk about 
you know, for, I suppose the construction industry from the perspective of being outside the construction industry and specifically based on patterns established within other industries. What would you have to say to any startups that is listening today? Um, how how do you think that, like, if they want to hear more about what Cogital is doing to help startups in the space, how can they get in, in touch with you or what kind of, a, I suppose, a, a pipeline do you have in place um, to actually help startups engage with you and delivering more of a, more products that fitted to the construction industry? Yes, so I think you never walk alone. So join as many of those communities like ACR as you can and always open for a conversation. You just drop me a LinkedIn message or, or a, an email message. I'm always open for conversation because, you know, selfishly, uh, I get so much from, from hearing people wanting to solve problems and we must welcome them and we must help them through as uh, as much as we can to to make as quick a journey as possible i think you know there are startups and startups you know i think first you must like and love that 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 kind of life and if you do then you know do it and and connect with a problem and be clear about the time and your life that you're investing into this and they don't all need to scale up to 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 being huge you know they 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 can be very very inspirational, um, smaller commercially, and still be foundational and fantastic. If you want to build a big one, I think we are come on the cusp of Gen 2. I think we are at point tools right now. Uh, you can you can see that we, we've got point solutions, even if they are very big point solutions like plan grid, you know, solving the whole of the workflows on the site. But then they need to be able to connect to, as, as you mentioned, John, I think they need to connect to open systems that are the project ERP, the, the supply chain, the Alibaba, the, the design reference, the timesheets of the other companies, the last planner system from your subcontractor or the, the invoicing system of your prime contractor or the design validation tool of the planners or the building authorities or, or your designers. So all this going to emerge into, I hesitate to, to use the word, you know, the AEC internet, but really think about that. You know, we have not really built tools that connect well. And so enabling those connections like BIM Launcher is, is, is doing is very much the Gen 2, uh, the, the Web 2.0 moment of technology coming to work to our industry. Well, I just want to say thank you very much. What I got out of, the, the big thing I got out of today was uh, remove friction and uh, make it easy, you know, for people. So appreciate that. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking again. And uh, Alain, thanks very much for your time.